I want to preach about all three readings uh, today. This is the third Sunday of Easter. And uh, in each of the readings, we, we uh, are confronted, if that's the right thing to say, with um, the presence of Christ, how we understand the nature of conversion experiences, what in the world is the book of Revelation all about anyway, and in the gospel, we have a resurrection appearance where Jesus is on the beach, uh, cooking and eating fish, and inviting the apostles to eat with him, and then once again giving Peter some marching orders about his vocation, which will also be one of the locations for the early church to say something about uh, Peter's centrality and the importance of Peter as uh, the chief of the apostles in some way. So I want to preach on all three of the readings. First, one of my heroes that I talk about maybe too much, Father Thomas Keating, uh, says that the great 50 days of Easter are uh, about three great theological themes. God's life, God's light, and God's love. And he also tells us in, in his book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy of Spiritual Experience, that every time we come to the Eucharist in church, Christ is present to us in five ways. In the assembly, in the reading of the biblical witness, the lessons, and the gospel, in the prayer of consecration at the Mass, in the bread and the wine as they're transformed uh, at the Eucharist, and in each of us as we go out, that he may dwell in us and we may dwell in him. And by virtue of that, we are in some way energized to, do, to be God's people in the world and to understand that for some reason, God needs each one of us to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. That we're necessary and that we count and we're important everywhere. Everywhere. So we're, we'll, we hold that thought as we move to the book of Acts. We read from the book of Acts uh, instead of the Old Testament, uh, during, mostly during the great 50 days of Easter, because uh, it tells the story of the early church and what they began to do and think. And today we're met with the story of the conversion of St. Paul. So we have an account by Luke. Remember, our patron wrote a gospel called The Gospel According to St. Luke, and he wrote a second volume, and the second volume is called The Book of Acts. Same person wrote both of them. And in this account of Paul's conversion, we have a very elaborate story that you heard read to you. But the problem is that it doesn't agree with Paul's own account of his conversion. Now remember, you always have to remember when I start talking about something like this, the Christian people who put together the canon of the Holy Scriptures knew these two accounts did not agree. And it was okay. So I need to explain the reason and why this is important as a lesson to each of us 
when we think about our own conversion experiences and what they might mean for us. Luke is writing in what is known in church history as the sub-apostolic age. He's writing in a period after the apostles, the eyewitnesses. And he believes that Paul cannot be an apostle, not like the 12 apostles. It is not possible for him because he was not one of the eyewitnesses. Nonetheless, we have to do something about it because Paul is an important figure and clearly has behaved and written and acted as if he were an apostle. And so it is uh, for Luke an indication that he may be vested with certain <clears throat> apostolic qualities that we don't want to throw water on. Right? Are you following me? So we need to affirm his apostleship in a way that says that he is reliant on the Jerusalem church for his authority. Now, he's not just some independent guy out there. Remember my great story about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Okay? And remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are running away from this guy, this sheriff with a boater hat with a skimmer, who seems to turn up everywhere. They simply cannot get rid of him. And finally, they're at the, on this, at the scene where they're way up on a cliff, and the only way that they can escape is to jump off. But they're still not wondering who it is, and they take the binoculars out, and they look, and here's the guy on the boater hat on a horse with a posse. So Butch Cassidy says, who the bleep is that guy? All right? That's what the Jerusalem church said about Paul. <laughs> who the bleep is that guy out there? We don't know him. He's making all sorts of claims. He's off somewhere. We've got to do something about this. So there's, a, there's an issue in the early church about that. Here's what Paul says in Galatians. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. So this doesn't fit with what we read in Acts. So here's what uh, people wiser than me about these matters conclude. They conclude that it is important for Luke to say that Paul has an overweening sense of his independence from the great apostolic tradition. And Paul, at the same time, has an overweening sense of his independence and his dependence upon the tradition that he has presumed and used when he has heard things like the Eucharistic formula that he describes in 1 Corinthians and in other places. So when I read this text, I say to myself, you know what? I stop to think about the times in my life that I have had experiences that you might call conversion experiences in big and small ways. Not just about my religious life, 
not just about my religious commitments and my spiritual orientation, but about things that have reset me for uh, seeing my life in greater depth and the importance uh, that I need to place upon my vocation to uh, be one of God's people in the world. And so when I think about my conversion, I have, or conversions, I have to say, how much credit am I going to give myself for these blinding insights? And how much credit am I going to give uh, serendipity and the friends who I love and trust who may have spoken to me about things that uh, are important and may shift me uh, to look in a different and more godly direction. And I, oh, I think this is what this is about, the contrast between uh, the two accounts of Paul's conversion and what Luke is concerned about and what he wants to do and what Paul is concerned about and what he wants to do. Paul probably was not easy dinner company. <laughs> All right, so the first lesson has talked something about conversion and its importance and its centrality and how you and I don't just get converted once. We have this happen to us in big and small ways all the time, a, a, way, a rethink of what it is that we, is important and how we need to proceed, how we need to, to orient ourselves uh, toward God. You've heard me say many times uh, about the book of Revelation or the revelation of St. John the Divine that the people who heard the words read to them for the first time or read this work understood it completely, knew what it all meant and what all of the symbolism was referring to and it was no mystery to them. So there isn't buried in the book of Revelation some future plan or some prediction about what's going to happen to the world. There are many interpretations of the book of Revelation. And I happen to be somebody who is... Uh, could be described as somebody who believes in what is called uh, praetorism. So I'm going to explain that to you because it's one of the theories of the book of Revelation. Okay? It comes from a Latin word. Uh, let me see. Praetor. Praetorism. Why wouldn't it be? Right? Okay, here's, here's what it means. I'll, I'll do a little preface. When I was in seminary... The commentary that was in the syllabus that we all had to read on the revelation of St. John the Divine was written by a man named G.B. Caird. And the commentary was called The Revelation of St. John the Divine. G.B. Caird was a world-class biblical scholar. He was actually not an Anglican. He taught at Manchester College in Oxford. He was... Uh, a congregationalist, let's say that. He was a nonconformist. That's what they call him in England. And Manchester College was the nonconformist location, right? Now, here's the interesting thing that has nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. If you were a nonconformist, 
If you were a, a, a Methodist or a Congregationalist or a Presbyterian or a Roman Catholic in England, you were a nonconformist. Because the Anglican Church is the Catholic Church in England. Alright? That meant, if you wanted to go to the two ancient universities, Oxford or Cambridge, you had to sign a paper that said you were a communicant member of the Anglican Church, of the Church of England, and that you had agreed to receive Holy Communion in the Anglican Church at least three times in the year, one of them being Easter. Okay? Well, it's a non-starter for G.B. Caird and people way before him. But here's the difference. If you went to Oxford, you had to sign that before you matriculated into the university when you began. Right? So if you couldn't sign it, however, if you went to Cambridge, the same rule applied, but you didn't have to sign it until just before your graduation. So what do you think a lot of nonconformists did? They got the education, but they didn't get the degree because they didn't sign. Right? Be that as it may, by the time uh, he was at Manchester College, that had all sort of uh, drifted away, fortunately. And he, he wrote this book on the revelation of St. John the Divine. And another, a number of wonderful books, but they're not for, pub, for popular consumption unless you really are interested. One of them was The Language and Imagery of the Bible, an absolutely superb book about the languages and about how uh, people in the ancient world understood their thought world by virtue of the languages that they wrote and spoke. It was a monumental piece of work. He wrote a, a, another one on the New Testament theology. Very, very, very good things. And he died prematurely in the early 1980s. G.B. Caird, in his book, The Revelation of St. John the Divine, said, the author of the Apocalypse, which is another word for the, the uh, Revelation, no more expects the end of the world than any of the other prophets before him. He was the classic presenter of the Praetorist position, which is that it, we interpret the prophecies of the Bible as events which have already happened. Daniel interpreted as events that happened in the second century BC. Revelation is interpreted as events that happened in the first century AD. So I believe that the book of Revelation is talking about something that the people who heard it and read it said, oh yeah, this is what's just happened. This is what's just happened in the world now. And we're making sense of it in this sort of way. We're not predicting anything. We have lived through this. Right? Just as when Jesus has spoken in a prophetic sense about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Luke or Matthew, or Mark, know it because they've lived in it. The temple has been destroyed. And this is the reality, the historical reality that they're living in. 
So what we have today from the reading of St. John the Divine is a reference about the nature of the presence of Christ to the ancient people, and they call him the Lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb. And some of the text that you heard read to you probably is lifted out of an ancient liturgy that was celebrated during the time that St. John the Divine wrote the book of Revelation. So it is what they call a liturgical fragment that is embedded into this reading. And it tells us something about the worship and tells us something about the metaphors and the ways they describe the mighty works of Jesus Christ in the world and why it's important and contains that element of redemptive, redemptive element in it. So always remember that when you read the book of Revelation. We're going to be, depending on your point of view, suffering through a number of readings from the book of Revelation, or we're now going to see this through fresh eyes and see, that, see its importance. It was one of the last books to get into the canon of the New Testament. There were a number of people who thought, we don't want it, right? But it got in. In some uh, of, the, of the Eastern churches, it still isn't in. I think there's one or two that don't use it. So it's somewhat uh, controversial in that sense. So finally, John. Jesus is on the shore. He's there. And this is another thing about the resurrection appearances that, you, that we seem to encounter, and that is uh, even people who knew him and were close to him initially don't recognize who he is. They see him and hear him, but they don't, they don't know who he is initially. And then when he speaks, at least one or two of them say, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And so then he says some things about how they can catch the fish. Uh, I think preachers, and probably Ernest may know more about this than me, have exhausted the caster net on the right side thing, don't you? <laughs> so that's, we'll just leave that alone. But the fact is that there's something in here about uh, Jesus' relationship to Peter and his directive to Peter to feed my sheep, which has enormous Eucharistic imagery uh, for the church. But here's the thing about my teacher O.C. Edwards when he said it's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? So in the original language it is agapeo. Peter, do you love me? Unconditionally, And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, phileo, like a brother. And so he asks him again, do you love me, agapeo? And he says, you know that I love you, phileo. And Jesus asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me, phileo? And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you, Philo. So I read that and I think to myself, well, how, how, do I, how am I doing about this? Um, do I really love Jesus unconditionally? Do I love God unconditionally? Or do I love God like a brother? Or do I really think, you know, agapeo, it's just a bit too strong. You know, condition, unconditionally. When you, when you ask that, you know, 
Do you love me unconditionally? Even the people that we love in our own life, we think so, we want to, we know it's right, but sometimes we really uh, can't make it. So then the next question that comes up for me is, is that good enough for God? Will he take your conditional love? Maybe that's all you have. For the moment. And I think that's what the Savior meant when he changed the Greek word. Because the Greeks, you know, have five words for love. In the Greek language. Ancient Greek. So he, he, he just finally came, didn't he? And he said phileo. I think that's pretty good because it may be a, a realistic assessment of the situation on the ground in every age. And so you and I have a responsibility in our own interior, emotional, spiritual, and mental states to think if we can ever get to agapeo, and in the meantime, if we can't, how are we going to live? And are we going to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love as we live? Even in the midst of that and of serious misgivings or doubts, you know, which are part of the way we all have to negotiate uh, the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So in the midst of this, phileo, Jesus gives, uh, describes Peter as an old man who's going to have a belt around him and being guided from what, boy, do you, do you ever anticipate what that might be for you? Oh, is, is this is what it's going to come to? Somebody's going to put a belt around your waist and say, come on, David, this way, right? Has it come to this? But what he meant was is that they're going to they're going to tie him up and they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him upside down in Rome, right where St. Peter's Basilica is, right. So he's predicting the way he's going to die, and Peter's going to do it for Phileo. It appears, right. So it give, it sort of gives us the thing is is it. I'll only be martyred for agapeo and nothing else. <laughs> That's it. Will God take my phileo as I do this and make a difference in the world? So I would rather err on, on the side of generosity in this matter because I think there are a lot of people who've lived heroic Christian lives who maybe haven't got to agapeo. And this is sort of your preacher's uh, admonition that uh, that might be okay as long as you're moving in the right direction. And we should pay, pray to God for the graces that we get in order to help us do that in big and small ways. And it's always surprised me the amount of heroism and dedication that all of us can summon when we uh, err on the side of uh, the godly judgment. So this gospel today is, a, is about that. How do we get from agapeo, phileo to agapeo? And one of the ways in the imagery in this reading from the gospel is we get there by participating in the sacramental life of the church.
That's why we have it as Episcopalians and the other liturgical churches. We have the church's sacraments, baptism, the Holy Eucharist, and the other sacramental actions that the church does in order in some way to sanctify the material world and to say that it counts and is important for God. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to uh, serve God, even in a conditional way, and uh, give thanks for the presence of Christ in the liturgy, which is there for us whether we believe it or not. Amen.